You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's inspired, authoritative word. Uh, a couple notes before we begin. Um, kids, we have some bags that are in the hallway that serves you. Uh, they're just right by the welcome table out there to the left. So it's got a bunch of goodies in there. So if that serves you, you can grab that. Next week, we will begin uh, Redemption Kids for ages 2 to 4. So Lord willing, we'll start that next week. So if you've got kids within that bracket, ages 2 to 4, uh, they'll just be right across the hallway in what is their band room, which we will turn into um, Redemption Kids. Well, one more thing. It is good to see you all. It's good to worship with you all. Um, it is a privilege to come together as the body of Christ, to sing praises to God, to open up his word together, to fellowship. So um, love seeing you. Um, thanks for coming here. I know there's plenty of places you could go to worship. Um, I'm thankful that we get to share this together as a church body. On Wednesday, it's last Wednesday, I was chatting with um, the community group that I'm a part of about how this uh, passage should probably be three sermons. <laughs> um, you might remember that I preached eight sermons in Ephesians 1 between verses 3 and 11. Uh, this passage has like the same kind of vibe. Like there's a lot there. There's a lot in Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20. And I had some, I had some regrets, some regrets this last week that I did, um, you know, take more time with this, but now my mind was kind of thinking on a sermon series about suffering and then Advent's coming down the road. So I felt like, okay, let's just, let's do one sermon with these particular verses. And it's going to feel like taking a 30,000 foot flyover of the passage. It's going to have that kind of feel, I think. But this type of approach does have its advantages. And it's this, after you kind of get the 30,000 foot, you know, flyover, you can go home and dig a little deeper into this passage. Because I, I think what's going to happen is you're going you're gonna to hear me preach, and you're going to be like, well, there's more here, Pastor Sean. And I'm going to be saying, yes, there is. There's a lot more here. So you can go home, open up the Word, read it, pray over it, figure out how you can apply it, because there's a ton here. The primary theological theme of this passage is spiritual warfare. Now, depending on your previous uh, religious experience, if you have a previous religious experience, uh, spiritual warfare might sound like crazy to you. Like, I got saved in kind of a Pentecostal church, and, you know, they were throwing around things. And I'm like, what is going on here? And they're calling everything spiritual warfare. It might be completely foreign to you. Uh, it might be right up your alley. You might be like, yeah, it's all spiritual warfare. Well, no matter your previous experience, I hope to provide some biblical imbalanced understanding of spiritual warfare, because it's clear in, in, in Scripture. And we must remember the context of our passage, which was read. In the last week, three weeks, we've narrowed on God's design for the home. What does it look like uh, for the home? How does God design the home? We looked at marriage, parenting, the relationship between bond servants and masters. And now we're stepping back a little bit. And see why conflict and division has existed. Why is it necessary for Paul to be very clear about what it looks like for marriages to thrive, for parenting to thrive? That's because there has been division. 
Here's another way to connect this sermon with all of the book of Ephesians. We have seen how the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down walls between husband and wife, between parents and children. We know by looking at other aspects of the Bible that the gospel of Jesus Christ tears down down walls between people who speak different languages, who come from a different cultural background, from different countries. The gospel breaks that down. We see this kind of unity all throughout Scripture. We can look to Revelation and see one day God's people are going to be made up of all kinds of folks. But here is the deal. The devil wants to reconstruct the wall that the gospel has broken down. The devil wants the wall to exist so that division exists. Therefore, Paul writes this part of Ephesians to inform us of where the more significant battle is taking place. We tend to think that the battle's taking place kind of on this temporal level. And to some degree it is. But Paul's actually going to do this. He's like, hey, ah, put your eyes upward. I'm going to show you where the real battle's taking place. So we need to pay attention and consider what God is saying to us this morning. I'm going to pray briefly, ask God for help, and get into the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. It is clear, it is authoritative, and instructional for our lives. Whether this is a new passage for some, or one where they've heard it over and over and over again by the power of your Spirit. We know that you work in and through the preached Word. So help me, O God, to be faithful to what you have already spoken. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a a trip down memory lane with me for a few moments. Uh, in, In the basement of the home I grew up in is my father's art studio. And so there's a door, you go into the, through the door into the studio. Well, on the door is like just numerous bumper stickers, anti-war stickers, anti-nuclear weapon stickers, anti-gun stickers, all over, all over his door. If you were to go upstairs of my home growing up, and in particular this time frame when the United States was in Iraq and Afghanistan, my father would have the death count of troops on the front door of our house. He would update it daily. If you were to go upstairs to my house, into my parents' closet, they got this big box of buttons. You know, the old school pins that you wear for campaigns and stuff like that? Well, half of them are like anti-war, anti-gun stickers, or buttons. So I think you get the picture of what I'm, what I'm trying to paint here. My father was not just against war. I find that most people just aren't a fan of war anyways. But he was like an activist. He was proud of being an activist. In a certain degrees, I understand his activism. War is ugly. Right? We all admit war is ugly. War divides family and friends. People die in combat. For example, in World War II, at least 70 million people died, and that's a conservative estimate. 70 million people. 20 million people were military personnel, while another 40 to 50 million are believed to have been civilians. Just regular people trying to live their lives. Ordinary people just trying to survive. Did you know that in the 20th century, uh, it is the bloodiest uh, recorded um, century in history. The total number of deaths caused or associated with its wars has been estimated at 187 million. The equivalent of more than 10% of the world's population in 1913. 10%. 
But war has been with humanity since the dawn of time. While not a war, we saw the first war action in Genesis 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. Leading up to the time of Christ, the Assyrians ruled ancient Mesopotamia until the Babylonians came in and conquered them. The Babylonians were in charge around 539 B.C., less than a century after its founding, until the legendary King Cyrus came in. He was a Persian, and he overthrew the Babylonians. Now, the Persians were in charge. After the Persians came the Greeks and the great Alexander the Great. And then after the Greeks came the Romans. Romans came in. It made Jerusalem and the surrounding area kind of their, their province. Like, we're in charge here. And much of this is recorded in Holy Scripture. Every time land changes hands, wars are fought. People died. All right. If war is ugly, and Paul would have been well aware of the horror of war, then why make war analogous to the Christian life? Why? Why make that move? Because of the ugliness of war, I know many Christians who are not comfortable with this comparison that we read about in Ephesians. I've heard it. I've heard those comments. And to a degree, I sympathize with the impulse to use other metaphors and analogies to talk about the Christian life. However, there is no way you can read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, and not hear what God is saying to us this morning. The Christian life means war. There's really no other conclusion you can draw than that. The Christian life means war. Some wars are unavoidable, and the war with the devil is undoubtedly inevitable. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a passionate plea to take up arms against the adversary, the devil. He says this about Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. It is a stirring call to battle. Do you not hear the bugle and the trumpet? We are being roused. We are being stimulated. We are being set upon our feet. We are told to be men and women. The whole tone is martial. It is manly. It is strong. You get the sense of what Martin Lloyd-Jones is trying to communicate. This is a call to war. You need to wake up. In Philippians 2, and in the book of Philemon, Paul describes Christians as soldiers. In 2 Timothy, we read about the authority structure for the Christian soldier. Paul says to Timothy, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You, Christian, if you're a Christian, you are a soldier whose aim is to please Christ, and it is Christ who's, who's the one who enlisted you into his army, as it were. So we see the comparison in Scripture. Now, but why the comparison? Like I said, we all probably agree war is ugly and bloody. So why make the comparison? Here's why. You need to know that there is an enemy who wants to take you down. You need to know that there is an enemy who wants to cut the legs right out from underneath you. And Paul is clear about the identity of the enemy. 
He is the devil. It's literally diablos in verse 11. And then evil day is coming, verse 13, when the evil one, verse 16, is aiming to go after your relationship with God. And perhaps for some of you, that day is here and now. Right now. And the question is this, are you ready? Like, can you step back and say, yes, I am ready. I'm ready for this call to arms that is being instructed to me by God. Remember, Paul is not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to the church, the church in Ephesus. Indeed, the devil lives in the delusion that he is more powerful than God when it comes to the state of a person's soul. The devil lives in that delusion, but he also takes aim at Christians. He takes aim at you. The devil cannot take you away from the sovereign grip of God, but the devil will do everything in his power to frustrate your relationship with God. He'll do everything he can. The devil wants you to be apathetic in your relationship with God. Just kind of, yeah, whatever. If God is out of sight and out of mind in your life, then the devil is one. I mean, how effective are you? You know what I mean? Okay, God, what God? So here's the bottom line. The devil wants to keep you from worshiping your creator. Wants to keep you from worshiping your creator. The devil wants to keep you from delighting in the one who has redeemed your soul. Therefore, you do need to prepare for battle. You need to be active in fighting against the devil. A passive soldier dies in war. An active soldier on the offensive is a threat against the evil one. So from our passage, there are like kind of three areas where I hope we can grow in by just becoming more aware of this battle against the devil. If you're going to be active in fighting against the devil, here's what you need to know. And yes, I'm going to explain who the devil is in a moment. But here's three areas I just want us to be aware of. That there's a particular battlefield that we need to look at. It comes right out of, our, out of our text, verses 10 to 12. Then we got this battle armor that we read about, verses 13 to 17. Then we got this battle strategy in verses 18 to 20. So I'm just going to kind of walk through the text one verse at a time. Let's start with the battlefield. What is the battlefield that Paul is referencing? The battlefield is described in verses 11 and 12, but first, notice where a soldier's strength comes from before even arriving at the battlefield. Before you even get there, you need to know what has enabled you to fight. Look at verse 10. Finally, remember, we're at the end of the book of Ephesians. So Paul is like, after everything I've said, since Ephesians 1, verse 1, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might? My might? No. His might. There are three different Greek words in verse 10 that are used also in Ephesians 1, verse 19. These words are translated in this verse as strong, strength, and might. In Ephesians 1, 19, these exact words are used in relationship to God raising Jesus from the dead. But here, these words are used in relationship to our current spiritual battle. So, Christian, think about what kind of power, might, and strength you're actually tapping into. 
the power, might, and strength that rose Jesus from the dead is now living in you. That's pretty unbelievable. That's pretty remarkable. You're not weak. And there's no reason to be scared. My, my youngest daughter does not like to go down to the basement by herself. And if I were her, her age, I'd be the same way. It's dark, it's musty, it's dingy. Um, it's typical farmhouse basement. But you know what? With me by her side, she has no problem. She'll go down every time. She'll skip down there. Dad's here. I'm not my daughter's God, but how much more confidence do Christians have when the Lord is by their side? So we also read, the strength and confidence of the Christian comes from God. If you fight the devil on your own strength, you will lose. You will lose. I cannot stress that point enough. If you fight the devil on your own strength, you will lose. You need to fight with the strength provided for you by God and from God. With God at work in your life, you are equipped with everything you need to resist the devil and all of his schemes and tactics. And yes, the devil is real. Now, we, Halloween's coming up, and so the picture pops into our mind. He's got horns, a tail, a cape, whatever, red, black, I don't know. Like that, that, so let's just dismiss that perception. The devil is not prowling around with horns and a cape, but the devil works subtly behind the scenes. It's usually in what we are not able to see where the devil is most at work and all of his minions He's not working openly because he prefers to work in the darkness instead of the light. He is like an opposing war general, working behind the battle lines, right? But directing the battlefield. He doesn't see the battlefield as God sees it, but he sees what's going on. Speaking of the battlefield, let's look at it. Here's verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. So what is tangible right here? Flesh and blood, quite literally. That's what Paul means. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? The rulers, against the authorities, against the, this is really important, cosmic powers. Helps us to see where the battlefield is, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul says it that, like that because he's well aware there's a darkness that pervades God's creation because of sin against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here is why so many Christians lose in battle. They're fighting on the wrong battlefield. They're fighting on the wrong battlefield. The primary stru uh, struggle is spiritual first before physical. Consider the Apostle Paul. Paul writes this letter while wearing chains in a prison in Rome. Think about that. He's in prison, and he's saying the battle is not in this prison cell. He does not say, hey, I need to get out of these chains. He says, don't worry about these physical chains, but be concerned about the spiritual chains that puts a soul in bondage because of sin. That is what you need to be worried about. 
The battle you fight physically is also spiritual. You cannot untether the two from each other. It's when you see your, your physical battles, your everyday battles, through the lens of the spiritual that you will, be, you will understand how to adequately fight on this battlefield. I think an apt example from Holy Scripture of this confluence of spiritual and physical is the Battle of Jericho. We read about this war, this battle, this incident in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Here's the cliff notes of the story. God promised Israel land in which God said you're going to live and prosper in this particular land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's called the promised land. Along the way, Israel comes across the city of Jericho. However, instead of fighting with physical swords, God tells Joshua to have the army walk around the city for six days. And on the seventh day, the army was supposed to, is going to march around seven times. And then the priests are going to blow trumpets. After the trumpets blew, the city walls came crumbling down. That's the story of Jericho in a nutshell. Now, I do not think there's ever been an American general who has imposed this type of war strategy. Just, just, just walk around the facility, guys. That's crazy. Why? Because without God, it is ridiculous. Without God, it is certainly ridiculous. Without God, marching around a city and blowing trumpets is insane. But with God, the strategy works. I can't explain it all. But with God, the strategy works. And because it works, we can see how the physical battle is intertwined with the spiritual battle. Joshua needed to trust that God's strategy was going to win the day. Likewise, we need to trust that with the strength of God, that we will win the day because of God. God is a million moves ahead while we're trying to figure out sometimes what game's being played. The battlefield is first cosmic and spiritual before it's physical. Here's an example of the kind of spiritual battle you are up against. Kind of an everyday practical example. Let's say uh, the devil gave you a million bucks. He'd be happy to give you that million dollars if that means you are content or apathetic in your relationship with God. He'd be content. Here you go. You want the money? Great. You're going to be apathetic and content? Not care? I'll give you two million. Conversely, the devil would enjoy taking away all your money if that means you became angry with God. You know, book of Job, anyone? So what's the point? The battle is not about money. The struggle is for spiritual, and the devil will use what is tangible to make you distracted, to make you frustrated, to make you discontent with God. The battle is first and foremost for your heart. For your heart. So the, so the battle that's going on up here, cosmic powers, principalities, etc., is going on with the goal of changing and influencing what's going on right here in your heart. So, knowing the battlefield is essential. If you're fighting on the wrong battlefield, the devil has you right where, you're, right where he wants you, disengage in the battle that matters most. Of course, when you go into battle, 
You need to have the correct battle armor. You should note Paul says twice, put on, that's verse 11 and in verse 13, he says, or take up the whole armor of God, all of it, the entire armor of God. Not just a few pieces, not just one, all of it. In a moment, we'll look at the armor components, but I want you to take note, it is every piece that is critical as you fight against the devil and all his minions and schemes and tricks. If you're familiar, like for example, if you're familiar with like war, World War I, World War II movies, you, you see this quite often, like someone's in the trench. You get a soldier in the trench, there's a big blast, and what is the first thing the sh- soldier does? He makes sure his helmet stays on his head. Because he realizes his helmet is just as important in battle as his gun. Every piece of armor is necessary. There's not one insignificant part of God's battle armor. So here's the list of armor according to the English Standard Version, ESV. And you can note that other Bible translations nuance some of these verses, but I'm sticking with the ESV because that's what we're used to. So verse 14, we got this belt. NASB says loins or waist. We got a breastplate in verse 14 as well. Shoes, as ESV translates this as shoes in verse 15. But what's being expressed here is something's going on with the feet. We got a shield in verse 16. We got a helmet and sword in verse 17. Perhaps a medieval knight or a, a Marvel character comes to mind as you look at all the armor of God, I don't know, but run with whatever helps you grasp the profundity of God's word. Now, each piece is important because of what corresponds with each piece. Again, God's word is helping you see the relationship between this physical armor and some spiritual realities. Here's a list one more time, but with the attributes connected to the armor. We've got a belt of truth. We've got a breastplate of righteousness. And I take that to mean not the imputed righteousness of Christ, but living rightly before God. Doing what is just. We've got, like I said, shoes, which is the gospel of peace. We've got this shield, which is equated with faith. We've got the helmet of salvation. We've got this all-too-famous all sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in verse 17. You come to battle with the belt of truth, because the devil is the father of lies, John 8, verse 44. The truth of God's word is more powerful than any lie ever spoken by the devil. That's why I'm always saying to you guys, get your head in the God's word. Be reading it. Because that's how you know what lies are. You read the truth. You come to battle with the breastplate of righteousness because you're committed to do what is right and just. The devil will do everything and anything to prevent God's standard of justice in this world and in your life to be betrayed. When you live rightly before God, the tricks and schemes of the devil, do they become exposed? When you live rightly before God, the darkness will be exposed by the light. You come to battle with the gospel of peace, which are your shoes. While the peace of Christ guards your mind and your heart, Philippians 4, 7, the devil wants to steal your peace, right? And consider this question, who wins the battle if all things are taken away from you, yet you're at peace with God? Let's say the devil comes, comes at you as he did with Job, yet you remain at peace. Who wins? You do. You do. 
you come to battle with the shield of faith. Yes, the devil cannot take away the faith given to you by God. We sang blessed assurance earlier, and rightfully so. But he wants to frustrate your faith. Yet there will be a day when faith will become sight, Hebrews 11.1. 1. What we eagerly await will become reality. The shield of faith that God has given to you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is more significant than any weapon the devil could use because faith looks forward to what God has promised. And we know that God fulfills every single promise that he makes, and we have faith in that. God has never failed. He is faithful. You come to battle with the helmet of salvation because your salvation is assured. The devil can't keep you away from God. He might try to frustrate you, but you are ultimately the Lord's. Therefore, you battle with the confidence knowing God will win the war. Yes, the devil may try to win a battle or two here or there, but God sees the entire battle map. And we need to remember in this fight, eternity awaits the redeemed. And finally, you battle in the reality that the sword of the Spirit is God's word. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God to use against the devil. But be warned. Be warned. The devil knows Scripture as well. If you're familiar with the story in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. What does the devil use to tempt Jesus? Scripture. He twists it. This sounds true, but it's not. Therefore, we must be diligent in our study of the Scripture. So each piece of armor is a sermon, right? You could take each of those pieces and let's do a sermon out of all of them. Yep, I get that. But here is what I must reiterate. God has given you everything you need to fight on the battlefield. You are not sent out to battle without everything you need. 16th century reformer John Calvin hits the nail on the head when he says this. God has given you more than one kind of help. As long as we are not lazy, that's a word for me, as long as we are not lazy to take up what he has offered. Unfortunately, Calvin says, nearly all of us sin by using the grace we are given carelessly and hesitantly. We are like a soldier who takes his helmet but leaves his sword behind. To correct this false sense of security, Paul borrows a military analogy and asks us to put on the whole armor of God so that we shall be prepared for every eventuality. He reminds us, Calvin ends here, he reminds us that we have a crafty and insidious enemy who attacks us secretly. Remember, I said he attacks in the dark. In the strength that God supplies, you fight with the Almighty God on your side. When the battle comes to you, you are not to run. When the battle comes to you, you're not to run, but you stand and withstand whatever the devil throws your way. Three times, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, God says, stand, stand firm. Also in verse 13, we read the armor exists to help you to withstand the devil. So stand firm and withstand. For example, when the fiery darts of the devil come your way, verse 16, you have the shield of faith to help you withstand. When the devil comes at you, you can be like, ah, 
I know what my faith says. I am God's. And, the, and you, devil, can do whatever you want with me, but I am God's. And ultimately, God wins the day. There were two seasons in my life when I felt like, maybe three, now that I was thinking about it more, but I'll mention two seasons in my life where I felt like intense spiritual warfare was going on. You could just kind of feel it. Um, temptations to depression, finding myself being more angry than I should. But the first was right after the Lord regenerated my cold, dead heart and gave me faith to believe in the Son of God. That happened almost 20 years ago. And in the following months, it just felt like intense spiritual warfare. The devil is never happy when a person commits their life to Christ. The second season of intense spiritual warfare began in March of 2020. It started when COVID became the new reality for the world. And I know that I'm not alone in saying that there has been, there's many people who have made comment, there seems to be intense spiritual warfare going on since then. And I'm not dismissing the the physical realities of COVID. I do not minimize the tragic loss due to COVID. That's not my point. What I am saying is that the devil has been happy to use COVID, masks, vaccines, whatever, to divide God's people bring discouragement to you and to me. To frustrate our relationship with God and frustrate our relationship with one another. I mean, I've seen the church fracture, not this local church, but the church in general fracture over these issues. And you know what the devil's doing? He's sitting up on the recliner and he is happy about it. It's like, yeah, go after it. He's enjoying the carnage. However, If you have every piece of the armor of God on, then you can withstand every shot that comes from the devil. It's every person within this church standing together with its armor on. And if we do so, we will remain united. And we will not allow the schemes of the devil to have its way. So that's the armor. Got the battlefield, got the battle armor, now the battle strategy. A battle against the devil means knowing the proper way to fight, right? So I got the field, got the armor. Okay, what do I do with this now? What do I do? It's no shock that the battle strategy connects with the battleground. There are two primary ways to fight on this cosmic battlefield. Paul points them out. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer and proclamation. Here's verse 18 and 20 again. Pray at all times in the spirit, we read, with every prayer and request, the word request can also mean supplication, and stay alert with all perseverance, intercession for all the saints. So we need to be praying for one another. Pray also for me, Paul says, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, is, for this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about as I should. So you, Christian soldier, are to pray at all times, for all the other Christian shoulders who are the objects of the devil's ire. The uh, English Standard Version, as I said, says that we are to come to God with prayer and supplication. Uh, Supplication is the action of requesting or even begging for something earnestly and humbly. So we come to God earnestly and with humility, with prayer, our prayers, our posture, it seems like isn't as much like a soldier, but like a needy peasant. Like God, 
I know you listen. We read all over the Psalms that God bends his ear to hear our prayers and bless. So why wouldn't we come to God with humility and with prayer? Once again, here's John Calvin. Having put on armor on the Ephesians, Paul now calls on them to fight by prayer. This is the true method. To call on God is the chief purpose of faith and hope. And it is in this way that we get blessings from God. There are many reasons to pray. Many reasons to pray. But here we see prayer is part of the strategy when fighting on this cosmic battlefield. Consider this point. What good is my 9mm Smith & Wesson pistol against the devil and his minions? No good. It will do nothing but prayer. But prayer is a weapon I can wield over and over and over again against the devil. Prayer works. Prayer can change everything. Because prayer can change your heart. Prayer can help cultivate your relationship with God, which the devil wants to destroy. Prayer helps you understand God's love, grace, and mercy. When looking for answers in life, you pray, knowing that God is on the other side of the line, listening. We pray for others who are suffering in pain and in broken. Prayer gives you strength when the devil tempts you. Prayer helps you to align your will with God's will. Far too often, we're trying to walk in our own will, and prayer helps us like, no, I, need, I want my will to conform to God's will for my life. Prayer helps you to do that. Prayer makes you more aware of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, and prayer helps you become more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. More can be said about the effects of prayer, but the devil doesn't like any of it, and we readily and joyfully pray to our Heavenly King, our Heavenly Father, who hears our prayers. The other part of the strategy is proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You wonder why we say the gospel so many times in this church, why we sing about it, why I say it in sermons. It's because it's what it's all about. The devil hates nothing more than, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we talk about it, we sing about it, we pray about it. We read in verses 19 and 20 that Paul asked the Ephesian church to pray for him. Does Paul ask the Ephesian church to pray that he be released from prison? Nope. Does Paul ask them to pray that his shackles be removed from his feet and wrists? Negative. Does Paul ask them to pray that his unjust persecution cease? No. Paul asked his brothers and sisters in Ephesus to pray that he would be bold to preach the gospel in the midst of his circumstances. Paul isn't looking at his circumstances like a tragedy, but an opportunity. God has me here. Might as well preach. Might as well tell the guards about Christ. So let that land on you. How does Paul, Paul's prayer request, right? How does Paul's prayer request shape your prayer requests? Now, I'm not suggesting that the Ephesian church should not be praying for Paul's release. Certainly, they can, and they should. I'm, I'm certain they were, right? Lord, release him from prison. We are called to pray for practical and specific things, right? Someone's going through a hardship. We want to pray, absolutely. But Paul is more concerned with the cosmic battle, which has physical ramifications, 
right? Paul is more concerned with the saving message of Jesus Christ being preached to lost souls before figuring out his next meal. So what can we learn from Paul in Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20? We realize that sometimes perspective matters. Our perspective on things matters. How is God viewing this instead of how is Sean Powers viewing this? The cosmic battle impacts your everyday life. Therefore, engaging the spiritual matters, especially the preaching of the gospel to lost souls, matters a ton. From here, from this change of perspective, realizing there's a cosmic battle taking place, we get on our knees and we earnestly pray for the challenging circumstances that other brothers and sisters in Christ face every single day and that you've faced in your life. God delights in our prayers for one another. Prayer and proclamation, they go together. And this is our greatest battle strategy against the evil one. I have two things to note before I end. It'd be tempting to read this passage and say, we've got a kind of us versus them mentality here, Pastor Sean. Like, we've got us, the church, and all those people over there. It's not the right way to see this passage. The church, the us, versus them is the devil. The church is actually a gospel light to those who are under the sway of the evil one. So when you look at unbelievers, you're just like, the reaction isn't, what's up with that? No, the reaction is, how can I pray for that particular individual? They would come to know the Lord. How do we fight against the devil on behalf of that individual? How? You pray and you tell them the gospel. I think it's important to remember that context. Because the us versus them isn't unbelievers versus believers. It's believers, the church versus the devil and all of his schemes. And I also want to end with a word about victory. Victory. Christians do not go to battle with a victim mentality. I know I've said that in the past. Christians are not victims. Paul never saw himself as a victim when he was sitting in jail. We go to battle knowing that with Christ by our side, we will ultimately win the war because of God. God will ultimately win the war. Yes, in war, there are personal setbacks. There are times when life looks bleak, but the hope we have in God, who keeps all of his promises, helps us to move forward against the schemes we face every single day. It is because of Jesus that we can arise every single day with the strength to fight. Like if it was hard for you to get up, be like, how can I walk today? How do I walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, if you're a Christian, you tap, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you tap into the strength that God supplies you. You remind yourself of truth, like your mercies are new every single morning. Like the belt of truth right there. That's how you begin to apply it to your life. Because we all know life is hard, but it's because of Jesus we can arise with the strength to fight. Yep, there are times when you feel weak. There are times when your sin is staring you in the face. But Jesus is more excellent than how you feel, and he is more excellent than your sin. Jesus has won the day. We just need to fight with the strength and the armor that he provides. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.